The following podcast is an audio version of a live show that takes place daily on Crowdcast. To join our live audience, visit our Crowdcast website at crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. That's crowdcast.io slash in lieu of fun. We're not allowed to have fun anymore. So lieu of fun, let's at least not be bored. Click. Come on, record. And we are live. It is Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022, 5 o'clock p.m. We are on time, just on time. My phone rang with another spam call, I, which the spam calls have been heating up all the last few days. Uh, it is a standing kind of day because I, uh, if I'm moving a little slowly, if I sound a little distracted, it's because I'm moving a little slowly and a little distracted. I pulled my back somehow and I am uh, uh, um, most uncomfortably not sitting down. Uh, all of which, meanwhile, however, uh, Russia is imminently to invade Ukraine, says uh, US intelligence. And the Ukrainians seem to have stopped denying it, which is an interesting development. We are not allowed to have fun anymore. Uh, so says everybody in Ukraine. So says my lower back. Uh, but we are allowed to have Rabbi Danya Rutenberg, author of uh, an eighth book, uh, which we're going to talk about in a minute, uh, in response to Greek chorus demand uh, for somebody to talk to us about the history of anti-Semitism beyond my ability to do that. Uh, Danya, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. So uh, before we get into the subject of the day, uh, which is its own rabbit hole, tell us about your new book. Uh, where can we get it and what is it about? So the subject is right up in the title. Um, on repentance and repair, making amends in an unapologetic world. So um, the idea is this, it's taking the uh, classical concepts of how to do repentance work that can be found in Jewish thought, particularly in Maimonides, who is a 12th century philosopher, and he was a physician and codifier of Jewish law and brilliant and very busy man um, and elitist and many other things. Um, but he codified these laws of repentance, how to do repentance work. And there are five steps, sort of first step confession, and then starting to change, and then amends, and then apology, and then making different choices, right? It sounds very neat and tidy, and yet- Number 12 step. Very 12 steps, and yet not. And yet when applied to our interpersonal relationships, it's very messy. And after Me Too broke, somebody, a journalist asked me, well, okay, so how does this apply to dudes who are getting named as abusers? And so I started to tease it out and I, like, I tweeted out 
some thoughts about this and people were like, oh, whoa, this is totally different than how I learned about this in church or growing up or da, da, da. And, and so I started playing around with the paradigm and, and the book basically applies these laws of repentance to harm in our public square, harm in institutions, because institutions cause harm, which is a body made of many actors, um, harm caused by entire nations, um, even great, great atrocities, thinking about um, a consequence and harm and what it means to create consequences for significant harm that could facilitate repentance and all of this stuff. So um, it's a lot. But it sounds fascinating. Yeah. I can't wait to read it. I, I've, I've become kind of a, a believer, a really a true believer in this paradigm. So who's publishing it? Beacon Press, the excellent Unitarians out of Boston. Excellent. Yeah, we like them. Um, all right. So uh, I have left uh, for those who want to pre-order it. It is out in September when you should join us again and we can talk uh, specifically about the book. Um, yeah. It is available for pre-order. I left the Amazon link because that was what was easily available. Feel free to pre-order it from them or others. So uh, the reason we asked you on the show was that um, I had made a number of comments at various times on the show about how anti-Semitism is, you know, sort of predates our concepts of race and therefore is uh, hard to compare with other what we would call racisms in a simple fashion. Um, and that it exists in somewhat different forms, but roughly uh, in the themes are recognizable quite across the political spectrum, quite across uh, ideologies and to some degree anyway, across time and nations. Um, and so I'd like to start with just the question of what is the oldest document you've ever seen that has or read about that has recognizably anti-Semitic themes in it that you look at and you say, boy, this could have been written yesterday. How far back can you go and the ideas are still more or less the same. Um, there are going to be some people in, who are listening who are not going to like this. Well, I, you know, it depends on how we're defining, like recognizably anti-Semitic versus could have been written yesterday are two slightly different things. Um, Book of Luke in the New Testament. Book John, pretty anti-Semitic. Um, at that point, the Jewish Christians and the Jews had broken up. And there's that thing about how you talk about your ex that's different about than how you talk about your person when you are in a relationship with them. And all of these tensions about who's in what kind of connection with the Roman Empire and fears and anxieties and stuff and wanting to differentiate Jesus, who was a Jew, and who is not just a Jew, but a Pharisee, 
um, you know, the, just all this stuff in the Gospels about Jesus and the Pharisees, but he was one of them. He was literally hanging out with his people um, and they were doing what they do. He was part of early rabbinic Judaism um, and Jews know about the debates between Hillel and Shammai, right? The sort of um, two guys who would just kind of go back and forth and talk smack. I'm pretty convinced personally that uh, Jesus was from the school of Hillel and that when he was talking smack, he was talking to smack at the, the school of Shammai and that the gospels were written after the breakup. And so instead of saying, Jesus said to the school of Shammai, they just were like, Jesus said to the Pharisees, because we're separating, you know, we were already decided that you don't have to be Jewish to be Christian. And so we're already, and so you can start to see this anti-Jewish, the Jews are, the Pharisees are hypocrites, right? The Pharisees and the tax collectors, right? You already start to see that there. So, but you can go back even before that, right? I mean, there is in uh, uh, Alexandrian writings a hundred years before that, the idea that Jews are obsessed with money, Jews are exploiting people. Do do you do you not do you date it to the Gospels, or is the Gospel sort of reflecting a pre-existing ancient Greek, you know, dislike of monotheism, dislike of 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 uh, uh, Jewish uh, clanism and non-universalism. There may be ancient Greco, probably maybe Roman. I mean, you know, Romans conquered the, you know, the Jews during the early Second Temple period, early mid Second Temple period, but before before zero for sure. Um, you know, but um, it, there may be some some stuff between Alexander conquering uh, the land of Israel in 300 and, you know, the Romans trashing the place in 70 CE. Um, I have not seen it. That doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Um, I mean, you've got Philo, who was Jewish, who then, you know, went off to be with the Romans and is, uh, you know, he's that guy. <laughs> you know, he's like, a, um, I'm trying to think of an appropriate, an appropriate word I'd be glad to have on the record. But he's, he's that guy who, um, you know, uh, left us when it became convenient. Uh, so I don't really hold by, by his by a lot of what he, like some of what he says about the Jews is useful and accurate, and you have to take some of what he says with a grain of salt. Um, Benedict so, Philo, yeah, sure. But, um, by, but by, so, but by your account, the, the split is really the origins of what we think of as anti-Semitism. It dates from, if, if it's not caused by the split, it coincides in time with the split and it's in reasonably uh, full display 
by the time the gospels are written in the second slash third centuries? Listen, we definitely, it's, it's, so there's the thing, uh, you know, as we say, what is it? Um, racism is prejudice plus power, right? Early Christians were an offshoot of early Jews who were uh, not writing kindly about the Jews and the way you write about your ex. And it was, you know, it was not nice and it was not good. And initially they didn't have a lot of power. Right. What changed is when the Roman Empire converted, right? When Constantine and that is in the fourth converted. Century. Correct. And that's when things, that's when we get to prejudice plus power. And that's when the dynamic shifted a lot. And um, this is a, a, a point at which may be useful to note. And this becomes, um, I think, a framework for, I don't know, <laughs> the last, the, the, the next from, from the fourth century until this morning when I checked my Twitter mentions, basically, of history. Yeah, you and me both. Right? Um, you know, the, the main, one main theological problem for anti-Semitism is that it is a problem for some lines of Christian thought. This is like hashtag not all Christians, right? There are trying to change the light so that it's better light, but we're just going to go good enough here. Um, <laughs> now I just messed it up. Um, uh, is that, you know, there are Christians who have excellent, really, really thoughtful, nuanced theology around this. Okay. So this is genuinely hashtag not all Christians. Okay. But there is definitely a school of thought for which it is problematic if the Jews don't convert, right? Jesus came, Jesus was a Jew. And the supersessionist thing, right? The New Testament came to replace the, the old covenant. And the Jews are like this holdout. And if we're not converting, then it just it's like a, you know, is that what's keeping Jesus from, from, the, from coming back? Is that, you know, like, is that refusing to prove that we're right is that whatever i don't know but it is a it is a theological problem in the way that the existence of hindus is not right the existence of the fact that jews still exist is a problem and um and that's you know the inquisition you know mel brooks okay. you know jazz hands right but all right there so this is the theological anti-Semitic tradition. Mm -hmm. There is also a racial anti-Semitic tradition yep. that by the time of the Inquisition, there is a real question whether you can convert, right? And the, you know, it's a real theological problem if you do, if you don't, but if you do, your conversion is suspect very deeply. And there's a, uh, the, the suspicion of the so-called conversos is much greater than the reality of them. Um, and, um, and similarly, this 
Greco-Christian anti-Semitism breaks out of Christianity. It becomes, you know, you can find anti-Semites in places where there are no Christians. Um, and it even becomes a feature of anti-Christian ideologies like communism and Nazism. Right. So I'm curious, at what point does it acquire breakthrough velocity and become this kind of cross-national, cross-philosophical, ideological memes where kind of Tom Lehrer can say, you know, and everybody hates the Jews. Um, um, I don't know what, I, I, this is, this is the part where I'm, I'm a rabbi, so I'm trained as a generalist and I'm a nerd, so I read a lot. But that does, you know, there are places where there are people who have actual expertise and I, I do not. Uh, I, I don't know exactly what happened and when it, things turned. But what we, we do know is there were Jews in the land of Israel. Eventually, Jews wound up in, the Jews were in Spain for, you know, 1700 years before they were kicked out by Isabel and Ferdinand in uh, 1492, right? They, Jews were in Spain for a really long time. Eventually, Jews wound up in, in Germany and France. And um, definitely, we know that by around 1200, they were already the ethnic other, right? By then, they were already the kind of racial and ethnic other. And this is that moment when people who are in the American, who I mean, we're all in the American racial paradigm. Like it, It's a little hard sometimes for people to, to get because... Like all three of us have the same color skin, right? And I, as a Jew, collect all of the benefits of whiteness in America now. Um, even so though fifty years ago you didn't. Correct. There, there used to be structural uh, discrimination against Jews, right? We couldn't get into certain universities. There was a whole thing about which restaurants Jews could get into. I mean, it, it was there was there was, um, but in Europe the color and texture of my hair, the look at his nose, you know, like these were racial markers that were, um, that were really racialized. Um, also, this is a moment to pause and note that not all Jews have skin that is the color that my color, my, that our, our skin color is, right? There are Jews that have every skin color under the sun, Jews come from every racial and ethnic background that exists. So Jews are not all white. Jews do not all come from Eastern Europe. Jews come from India and China and Ethiopia and Uganda and everywhere all over the, all over the world. So um, when we talk about Europe, we're talking about one specific history. GDF? Was there. Um. I'm I'm going to be jumping a bit with my question. Is that okay? Because mm -hmm. I I mean we see these collective extreme um, hateful messaging that comes into our, our our European history that are still somewhat used and called upon for political discrimination as well today, especially within the last year with QAnon. You see a lot of imagery from the traditional anti-Semitic. Um, is trope the right word? I'm not even sure. It's the classic uh, it, blood libel. Yeah. Yes. Right? Exactly. It's George Soros eating babies. Exactly. <laughs> you know? so, so how do we how do we reconcile um, 
it because it's not just a, it's an odd discrimination because it's not just a discrimination of faith it's not just a discrimination of race it's also a discrimination against politics and like it's 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 ever it's all encompassing and how 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 do you stop <laughs> like i don't know like it just just it, it doesn't make sense to me Okay, so first of all, I want to apologize to whatever baby is in the background. We are not going to eat you. Um, <laughs> the stardust might. <laughs> um, the baby in the background is named Luke, and uh, not only are we not going to eat him, but we're not going to uh, make him answer for certain passages in the book of Luke. No. Who had no idea. <laughs> no. You um, will grow up to be a Jedi. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> also, there's good stuff in the book of Luke. It's not, you know, um, we'll take it all. Um, so there's a woman named April Rosenblum, who's a, an educator, who articulated this in a very clean way. Um, actually, should I do the Jews and money thing? Maybe I do the Jews and money thing first. And then, because I think then the Rosenblum analysis will make more sense when I do that. So Jews got, got to Europe, um, not allowed to own land because anti-Semitism and forced into other trades that we didn't necessarily want to do because anti-Semitism. And then Christians decided that um, uh, money lending is bad and sinful, but they were going to make us do it because anti-Semitism, you do the sinful thing. And the Jews are like, we got no problem with it, with money lending. Like, okay, sure. And it's gonna make us a bunch of money, which is helpful because y'all are taxing us at ridiculously high rates because anti-Semitism. And you keep kicking us out of towns and countries. So it's helpful to have some liquid assets because anti-Semitism. Um, mostly we were really poor all the time it's like you know one or two guys in our community were doing the money lending and the rest of us were like you know and and helping to offset the taxation on the whole community but that you know it doesn't fix everything um and but we got resented for being the bankers and so then you get this jews money trope and you will find drawings from like the 12th century with the scales and the Jews and the nose, like it's already there. So you start to already have this Jews money power thing that didn't, ref and like they keep kicking us out of these countries. And we're like, crap, where are we gonna go now? Okay, I guess we're going East. Like we didn't most of the time actually have power, but this trope got born and what Rosenblum says is that the point, and I think this is spot on, and you, once you see it, you see it. The point of anti-Semitism is to keep a Jewish face in front. And so Jews, rather than the actual people in charge, are the target of people's rage. Things are going badly. Blame the Jews, not us. And so... That's a really interesting. There, there's that that theory has a huge amount of explanatory power in a lot of Eastern Europe in the last five hundred years. And uh, just for those who 
don't know the history of demographic Jewish demographics, when when Jews were pushed out of places, and Danya says it's, they tended to go east, the in, immense concentration, at least of Ashkenazic Jews, which is, you know, Jews who uh, spoke Germanic languages, basically, and Slavic languages, uh, ended up in this strip that runs from the Baltic states down through the Ukraine and parts of Russia, uh, Belarus, what, what Jews call the Pale of Settlement. Um, and that's the reason that the overwhelming majority of victims of the Holocaust are, they're right in the path when the Nazis invaded Russia there are five million Jews in the way of the of the invasion, and that's the bulk. It's more than two thirds of the victims of the Holocaust. It's also the majority of American Jews. So the previous fifty years, you have five six million people leave that community, uh, and that is why the vast majority of American Jews are Polish, Russian. Romanian, Lithuanian, uh, Belarusian, Ukrainian, uh, none of whom made big distinctions. They all, they were mostly Yiddish and Slavic language speaking. They're not hugely demographically different from one another, though they lived in different uh, communities. Um, so I, I guess I want to try to boil this down. You have a theological component. You have an ethnic prejudice component that has money, money aspects to it, and uh, but some racial aspects. The the nose. The you have uh, prejudices based on things like you know turning children into matzah and spreading plague. Right, all kinds of. Um, you know, myths that are also very similar to myths associated with Roma and uh, uh, and other other peoples from that region. Um, at the end of the day, do you think of this as a racism? Do you think of it as a as a theoretical analytic position? Uh, I mean, a lot of anti-Semites in history were philosophical about it. it. In fact, the word anti-Semitism comes from Germans who were opposed to Jewish integration into German society. They were anti-Semitish. Um, or is it just a serendipitous thing of its own that, that sort of defies analogy to, uh, to other prejudices plus power? So this is the thing is that, you know, people try to do this thing of like, are Jews a religion or, well, no, because you can be an atheist and be a Jew. Um, are Jews a race? No, because Jews are black and Jews are Asian and Jews are, right? Um, and Jews are white and Jews are da. Okay, so are Jews, Jews are a people. And that is a concept that doesn't translate cleanly into uh, secular American slash Christian uh, ideas because peoplehood, uh, the idea of being in, we call ourselves like Am Yisrael, the people of Israel, Israel, the country being named after the people, 
Israel and, is. And just to, yeah. to foot stomp this point, the word Am has no easy translation into English. It, it has connotations of nationhood, peoplehood. Uh, it doesn't mean country. It doesn't mean uh, it's it's a very it's a very sticky little word. Uh, it has a it has a analog in Arabic. The it's the same word as in Arabic that Muslims use to refer to the Muslim nation or the Muslim community. Um, uh, right. but it's not. It's a very hard word to to translate into English. Right. It's the the closest an analogy. Um, you know, I see somebody in the chat is like, is there an ethnicity? And it's like, well, no, because a, a, you know, we are, you know, Yemenite Jews and uh, Jews whose family are, you know, 300, 400 years in Russia are not the same ethnicity, right? Um, or, in fact, a Yemeni Jew is ethnographically not distinct from a Yemeni Muslim. Right, exactly. And my, you know, I, my brother did the 23andMe and I, I am I, I'm like 99.9% Ashkenazi Jew. I'm like as Ashkenazi as they come. Um, right. And, and there are different ethnicities of Jews. There's Ashkenazi, there's Sephardi, the descendants of the Jews that got kicked out of Spain in 1492. There's Mizrahi, the, the Jews who never really left the Middle East, more or less. Um, and they're, you know, Jews by choice or the descendants of Jews by choice, a.k.a. converts, um, come from every ethnicity. Uh, and, 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 right? I mean, you know, we can keep piling examples. Um, the best example, the best analogy is maybe like a citizenship. Right, you you become a citizen. You are, I'm American. I was born American. So when it was time for me to get my passport, it's you know it's like, of course, like I'm a citizen. I'm oh, I just was born into America, and so I'm automatically an American citizen. And I am married to somebody who was not born here, but who went through a process and there was paperwork or whatever and became an American, right? So Jews are a people. I don't know. We're all, you know, and, and the boundaries are permeable depending on who's asking, right? But Yeah, there are, the, and they range from on the, on the really strict, what we would call ultra-Orthodox kind of Lithuanian tradition people convert out of a caution that they may have some uh, non-Jewish maternal line blood somewhere to a tradition in the reform tradition that, you know, we don't really care much about patrilineal descent at all. And if somebody's, you know, if somebody has a Jewish parent and calls themselves a Jew, they don't really ask further questions than that. And so the, the permeability is enormously uh, variable. The state of Israel in a, in a kind of an interesting decision treats for citizenship purposes, anybody with a Jewish grandparent as Jewish because uh, they could have been killed by the Nazis. 
Uh, that's that was the Nuremberg law, to, um, but for religious purposes, adopts a very rigorously orthodox view of the question. And so there's a sort of there's a, a very weird schizophrenic quality of the Israeli formal position, and it's a very fiercely contested issue within Jewish communities. Is that a fair summary? Yes. Yes, with a little bit of the um, idiosyncratic and not infrequently racist, you know, <laughs> decisions about when right. to apply what. Um, right. what, what if roles you have a long beard and sidelocks, fewer questions get asked than if, if you, yes, than if, if you're you, Ethiopian. If you are from Uganda and you converted through the conservative movement, and you know, we have we like have the certificate, and I'm like standing there handing it to you um suddenly so, and nobody's sure anymore because so your skin's the wrong to, color but before whatever before we go to audience questions i i am curious if to have a list from you of kind of what are the things the uh, the what are the major themes that you will hear uh left right and center that are characteristic of not always the person is a raging anti-Semite, but the, the, the person has been influenced by anti-Semitic ideation. What are, the, what are the sort of major themes that when you hear you, your hairs on the back of your neck prick up? The assumption that Jews are in charge, have a hookup, you know, oh, you know, the Jewish network. Um, I, you know, the um, man who who took my colleague a hostage in Coleyville, Texas, not long ago, just assumed that if you could get a rabbi, that that rabbi could call another rabbi and get somebody out of prison because Jews can just get things done. Right. There's that's the very exaggerated version of it. But you hear lighter versions of it all the time. The assumption that all Jews are rich, of course, when that is absolutely not the case. Um, miserly. Right. And also cheap. Um, miserly is a nice word for it. <laughs> um, you know, um, let's see what else the. The assumption that we're in control. And so th this is actually a theory, some, some really important work from Eric Ward, who is um, a really important voice. Uh, he's got a piece called Skin in the Game that you can Google um, about how anti-Semitism undergirds white nationalism today. And he he had this moment, he's, he's black, he's not Jewish. Uh, there are people who are black and Jewish. He is black and not Jewish. Um, and he researches far-right nationalism, and he had this aha moment when he realized that for all of these white nationalists, the theory is, like, how could the civil rights movement have happened? How could feminism have happened? And uh, how, could have how could Obama have gotten elected? All of their ideas are about, you know, superior race, inferior race. How could... Uh, civil rights be advancing how could quote unquote those people be winning 
somebody behind the scenes must be pulling the strings, must be in charge. Um, and this is actually, if you go back to the original great replacement theory, which comes out of France, it is not simply that immigrants are replacing French people or white Americans. It is that Jews are bringing in immigrants to replace French people or white Americans. You know, there's there's a the great replacement theory is weirdly about Jews and Algerians. Um, yeah. So what, what, I, go ahead, G. Sorry, Ben. Yeah. Um, just really quick, quick question. Um, do you think that these themes have become such an implicit bias against the recognition of anti-Semitism that people almost still refuse to acknowledge it or just are so uncomfortable with like, because I'm not Jewish. And to my to my knowledge, I, I don't have Jewish ancestors, although I don't know, I speak more Yiddish than I do anything else because so, I grew up in New York. So, New Yorker, yeah. right? Yeah. It's its own category yeah. of, of Jewish, subsection right. of the Jewish people. Yeah. Right. Um, but you have this hard time. And I mean, quite a bit of my Jewish friends were talking about this, especially last year. There was a lot of very clear anti-Semitism and a lot of violence and not a lot of people calling it out and not a lot of people speaking about it or really calling attention to it. And so when you spoke about these themes, do, how much do you think that influences the ability, the ability or the desire of those who do not recognize it as actual prejudice and violence or and just see it as like an, a one-off thing and not a theme? Okay, well, then there's the other elephant in the room that we haven't discussed. Um, should we talk about the occupation? Yeah, and, uh, and actually, I think the, the question of uh, how anti-Semitism does and doesn't relate to legitimate criticism of Israeli policy is a really interesting sub-theme here. Yeah. yeah. Go, go for it. Okay. <laughs> um, so, I, you know, facts on the ground, Israel is, you know, definitely illegally occupying Palestinian territory, right? Like that's, 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 that we know what that means and what that looks like. And, you know, and it's committing atrocious human rights violations beyond, beyond, beyond. Um, I've been to the West Bank a number of times. I, the more you learn, the more, um outrageous heartbreaking astonishing it is um i personally think breaking the silence is one of the most important organizations in israeli society it's a group of israeli veterans who have served and are telling the truth about what happens under occupation um it, yeah i mean you know it's 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 it is horrific. Atrocities are happening. Um, to what that means, you know, what the parameters, what the you know, I don't want to get into like the back and forth about the language. We we know that Israel is the Israeli government is in the wrong significantly. We know that. Um, what does it mean? to criticize the Israeli government, to say the Israeli government is doing wrong, is causing harm, and how do we talk about that in a way that 
holds a government accountable for its harm while um, being mindful of the fact that A, not every Jew is Israeli. Um, not every Israeli is supportive of the actions of the Israeli government, right? You know, how do we, can we talk about what it means to be an American as America is bombing Iraq or being part of the school to prison pipeline? Like, can we have nuanced conversations about separating policy and from assuming, you know, from, from the, the assumption that a whole people or even a whole country is, is collectively uh, responsible, which does not mean, by the way, that, um, that's not a statement about tactic, right? I'm not going to say what you should or shouldn't buy, or this is not me, you know, I, I, I can say what I think is useful strategies or not useful strategies for protesting the occupation. No, 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 we can get, we can go there. But that's a different conversation than assuming that every single person whose parent, whose grandparent was a Holocaust survivor and literally had nowhere else to go because the U.S. had closed its doors in 1925, four. Because of the Chinese Exclusion Act, because it was anti-Asian, and so it wasn't letting in any Holocaust survivors practically, and so there were all of these survivors who had nowhere to go, and so they went to this patch of land in the Middle East, and so suddenly there's somebody who was raised there um, that they are necessarily supportive of the horrific harms perpetrated to Palestinians. Right? That we can we can we untangle that? Can we find ways to talk about that? Um, and can we talk, find ways to talk about American Jews? And can we understand that Amer many, 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 many American Jews do not think that these are harms that should be perpetrated in their names at all, right? And that's where things get really tangly. And there's, okay. also, the, there's also the element, I think, of the the failure on in some situations to distinguish between critique of specific occupation policies or the occupation itself and the question of the sort of legitimacy of the idea of the state itself and mm -hmm. there's a there's a some of the themes that you're uh describing here where you know people had nowhere to go there was a movement that had an answer to that question uh, and proposed an answer to that question and sort of successfully built a, a, a state apparatus that was capable of handling that. Uh, and, you know, there's the a lot of themes that we associate with anti-Semitism get woven into the critique of that process. Um, and you know, to some extent, there's a lot to criticize in that process. There's not the same energy devoted to critiquing other states that were formed under much less circumstance of crisis than there is uh, that particular process. 
All right, let's go to audience questions before we uh, run out of time. I'm just going to bring people in without um, even reading the questions because uh, <laughs> I actually uh, uh, haven't read them. So I just uh, invited people on in the order in which their questions uh, appeared. Uh, Charles, the floor is yours. Hey, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the history of uh, anti-Semitism in the Midwestern U.S. I understand that Minneapolis was the most anti-Semitic city in the U.S. at one point, at least during the 30s. And I was wondering if you know anything about, is there still latent anti-Semitism either in Minnesota or in the Midwest more, more broadly, if you're, you happen to be aware? And just out of curiosity, where did you get the idea that Minnesota was ground zero in uh, Midwestern anti-Semitism? I'm not doubting you. It's not in my high that. school Holocaust class. Interesting. So, Are you from Minnesota? Oh, you betcha. Where? Minneapolis. Uh-huh. Yeah. So I'm a Gentile from Minneapolis. So the whole whole thing was news to me when I, you know, when I, you know, you learned of it in high school and, um, so so what do we know about midwestern anti-semitism charles lindbergh was from there as was father coughlin although he was oh. more chicagoan than than yeah. i think than than minnesotan um i stumped you wait you've blinked out i can't hear you me uh, no, uh, uh, Rabbi. Uh, are you, is anybody else hearing her? No, not at the moment. Uh, let's see. Let me... You may want to refresh your screen. Yeah, tr try refreshing your screen. Um, I will, in the meantime, I will just say there is... Uh, I, I do not necessarily think of the Midwest as ground zero in American anti-Semitism, um, uh, much less the upper Midwest. That said, there, it, there was a significant populist strain there uh, that, you know, is sort of famous for people like, you know, in Wisconsin for Bob LaFollette, et cetera. Uh, there was a significantly anti-Semitic strain of that, of which Lindbergh is an example. Uh, all right, are you audible now? No. Um, let me try a different uh, tactic on my end. Um, there was a, uh, um, a, a, a sort of anti-Semitic strain of that movement. Um, how about now? Um, how about not now. Uh, no, we've got me coming now. through your... All right, I'm going to remove Danya and bring her back and see if that solves the problem. Um, uh, there was a, you know, most American movements of the sort of mid-century had significant anti-Semitic con contingents to them to the extent... The extent in... in Okay. Try talking now. Okay. Try talk talking now. Do you read me in the bat, bat cave? 
We do. Okay, we've got a little delay on you and we've got an echo on you. So I'm going to keep you muted when you're not talking. And uh, otherwise, we should be fine. All right. So uh, I will now turn the question back to you. What did I get wrong on Midwestern anti-Semitism? And uh, is Minnesota ground zero? I don't know. I, I, there are a lot of Lutherans in, in Minnesota, yeah? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, I mean, listen, um, Luther was really excited about the prospect of his shiny new uh, ideas being the thing that, that we're going to draw all the Jews into uh, the fold. And then when we didn't convert, even after he, he, the 95 theses were nailed on the door, he got really mad and wrote a whole book about how much we sucked. I wonder if there is a big influence on Hitler, by the way. Um, yeah, so uh, that's what we got on that. Okay. Zunyi, uh, the floor is yours. Hello. Hi, Rabbi. It's great to hear from you. Um, so my question is about being a more effective and better ally. Um, and I saw in the chat that people were commenting on, you know, speaking of RIP, all your mentions that um, this city council member in Kentucky today is caught on tape from, I think, a meeting yesterday where he made some really disgusting, clearly anti-Semitic remark so casually. I mean, just it's so clearly casually just rolled off his tongue, did not have a real reaction. Nobody commented. There was like a brief silence. And then, you know, there was a little uncomfortable laughter um, or snickering or something like that. But, you know, a lot of us have been in those situations where, you know, you it depends on the context, whether you take someone aside or how you call it out. But it, it seems to me that this is the state of Kentucky. This is a person in authority that was no doubt affected by the extreme weather event that Kentucky had last month, that I'm sure received um, uh, money um, and help from the Jewish community to rebuild whatever was happening. Um, and to say something like that, it's really offensive. Sorry. And I was just thinking like, you know, I know that he's going to get a letter from the ADL. He's going to get a letter from a local synagogue, but that's, but that's actually not acceptable. It shouldn't have to come from the community. It should actually come from, it seems to me, the actual allies, because that's probably who he's going to hear a message that he didn't learn or needs to unlearn better. Um, and so I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts about that. It's a big question, I know, but it's, you know, important. Thank you for it. Your thoughts? Oh, we've lost your audio yeah. again. Thank, thank you. Oh. First of all, so appreciate it. Oh, no. No, no, you're uh, good. Is it It's really? just a delay. It's it's, you're good. Okay, now I'm good. Okay. Thank you so much for the question. I'm so grateful for it. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, 
as with all oppressions, I, calling it out when it happens, if possible, in the moment, naming it after the fact, if possible, um, you know, on social media, you know, sometimes it's about pulling somebody aside and educating them. Sometimes it's about um, doing it in the moment, you know, wow, that was really, that was anti-Semitic, dude, you know, or, or whatever. Um, and particularly given how um, insidious anti-Semitism is and, you know, there's these tropes and we're gonna kind of blame and we've got this, you know, these ideas that Jews are in charge and anti-Semitism actually works better in times in history when Jews are doing okay, as we are in America because, at least for white Jews, um, in an anti-black country, right, we've, since the GI Bill, managed to assimilate into whiteness at least some of the time. We call it conditional whiteness. Um, the, the, the running joke was, you know, white enough for the cops, not, not white enough for the Klan. Um, right? Um, when the cops and the Klan are the same people, I don't know, but um, I didn't say that. <laughs> Live on YouTube. Um, but when we have certain privileges, it's, it's particularly hard for people to see. And so for allies to name it really clearly is so helpful and for people to be able, particularly when we're talking about Israel and the occupation, to be able to to talk about how we can criticize policy and that doesn't mean that we have to uh, condemn entire, you know, millions of uh, Jews worldwide for the actions of a government, for example. Um, so important. Um, for those of you who are Christian, Please, like your allyship is so critical. Talking about supersessionism or replacement theology, the idea that the new New Testament is here to replace the old one uh, deprives us of, of our agency, and um, that is the, the the source of so many harms. Um, Pharisee is not a synonym for hypocrite. Please. Um, <laughs> Yeah, it's we're not, all Pharisees here. It's not a slur. It's not a slur. It's like, you know, if a kid at the playground is like, oh, that's so gay. Like when you use it as a, as a slur, you're learning that it's bad. Pharisees were a group of Jews. They were the ancestors of rabbinic Judaism. That's the Judaism we practice. So like the educating people about how to all of these, and it's so, you know, it's so insidious. People are so used to talking about like, oh, the Pharisees, you know, don't be a Pharisee about it, Sarah. You know what I mean? Like, like it's so insidious. And so having to, to really um, unlearn some deeply held paradigms, you know, and not see all of Jewish text as, um, you know. Eat tomorrow. The floor is yours. For, for, for something else. Uh, so I've got um, two questions, but I don't know if we have time for both. So We do. Take them in order. <laughs> okay. So my first question is, 
uh, about when is anti-Semitism, uh, or sorry, when, uh, when is uh, uh, uh coming to the border of anti-Semitism? And I have a bit of a story that I teased a while back that relates. Uh, so Please when I it. was, so when I was hitchhiking in the Pacific Northwest, uh, a guy picked us up, and uh, we started talking about religion and Christianity and Judaism. And this, uh, and he was telling me that his favorite uh, book of the Bible is the Book of Luke, and who gets into heaven and who doesn't. Uh, do I believe in Messianic Jews who? who uh, believe in Jesus. Uh, I told him, and my mom told me, what are you, an idiot after this, that most Jews uh, would probably consider that blasphemy. Um, and uh, anyhow, so he, he took us basically all the way to Ashland, uh, um, Ashland, Oregon, where we were trying to get to. And uh, when he dropped us off, we we're actually 20 miles away from the house. We we're going to stay at for the night. And he offered to uh, pray over me, uh, both in my journey and my physical and spiritual journey. And not a minute after he left, another car that was going exactly to the place we were heading to just pulled up right in front of us on the curb. We weren't even pulling our thumbs out yet and uh, picked me up. But uh, before he left, he was telling us about who he thinks goes to heaven and who doesn't. So he's telling, well, yeah, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm like a Lutheran or something. I believe like even Mormons, Catholics, they all go to heaven, but like leaving out the Jews. And he really, really wanted to convert me. And from my perspective, I mean, he clearly believes that I'm going to have my eternal soul in hell if I don't convert. And so from my perspective, like, I, I don't know, I'd, rather not be proselytized but he's trying to save my soul that's like a really big deal for him so is that like anti-semitism is he trying to do his version of a mitzvah tough question wait we're losing you we've lost you again Wait, we've really lost you now. I can see you. Um, let's try something. Um, I, it would be a shame not to get the answer to this before we... Uh, how about now? Can you hear me? Okay. Yeah. Now? Yep. Yes? Yep. Sound? Do you hear me? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah, we're good. Okay. Yep. Um, yes, he thought he was helping. And yes, it's anti-Semitism because he's denying your agency. Different way of thinking and believing and experiencing the world his agent can still be anti-Semitism, even if he's trying to help. Yeah, I, I honestly don't know if I agree with that. I think you have- Really? Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, he would he behave differently if you were Hindu? Would he behave differently if you were Muslim? I mean, there is a kind of strain of evangelical Christianity that just has a sense of urgency about, you know, it's a very dire conception of the human condition and it can be expressed respectfully or disrespectfully, but, and it does have an, an unusually peculiar relationship with Judaism, but I, I actually think that there's that it's more an expression of the theological position of this sort of urgent uh, uh, kind of millenarian end of the worldism than it is about the nature of Jews. Um, and, you know, yes, and, right? I mean, you know, if they had found out he was an atheist, they would have tried to convert him Same if they found thing, out he right? was right. And there's that, you know, it's it's that thing that you said, the minute they found out he was Jewish, there's that sort of extra, like whatever, that's the thing. Right. That's there's the a, a special relationship and it's not a good one. Right. The, I got a Jew, the, the getting to go home and say, not just I saved three souls today, but like, I got a Jew, it was a really big fish. That's that's what what makes it not just um the one thing but the other from okay I, I i i i buy that to the extent itamar that you uh thought uh there was special attention being paid to you because of the name itamar <laughs> um, <laughs> um uh, i agree that's that's uh sort of not kosher but to the extent that you're like all right you're obviously you know not uh, saved, and so someone's got 10 hours in a car with you, and you know, damn, damn it, he's gonna use that time. I, I don't, I don't think that's, uh, I, I don't think that's anti Semitism, except insofar as you're singled out. All right, we are gonna leave it there. Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg, you're a great American. It's lovely to meet you in person. I've only, thank you so much, only ever dealt with you on Twitter, which is always a pleasure. You should follow. Uh, Danya, what's your Twitter handle? It's at the radar, the rabbi. So there's a thing in Judaism where we do, um, here, should I put it in the thing? Yeah. At the R-A-D-R, -R, where we do um, like rabbi, R-A, and then initials. So I'm Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. So it's the Rabbi Danya Ruttenberg. There we go. And the book on repair, repentance and repair, making amends in an unapologetic world will be out in September. And we will have you back to talk about the book in Please. particular. In the meantime, we will be back on Friday. Who, GDF, who do we have on Friday? Ooh, um, I can tell you if you give me one moment. Um, we are having oh Constanza. Uh, Const Const yes. yes. So this is a uh, a specific request by as this show was a specific request. Uh, uh, President uh, Thomas Ilvis, uh, who I don't think is with us today, emailed me the other day and said, uh, "Ben, I have an idea for a show uh, for in lieu of fun." You guys need to have uh, Constanza, uh, 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 your Brookings colleague, on uh, uh, to do a show on WTF Germany, 
uh, and foreign policy. Constanze Stenzenmüller is my uh, German uh, 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 foreign policy colleague at Brookings. She's a uh, great fun. And she is going to join us to explain why the Germans have taken such a pro-Russian turn in, uh, in European politics uh, and how we should all feel about the uh, new government of Germany and its, uh, its uh, uh, attempt to create a third way between East and West. And that will be 46 hours and 57 minutes from now. And until then, GDF... We don't have fun anymore, but until then, we have so much history and the opportunity to make it better. Just